the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right in the middle of the, of the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you probably. You can grab that. Feel free to turn that to the middle. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. <clears throat> We're going to continue from verse 8 uh, into chapter 6, a little bit of a longer passage where Solomon begins to address wealth and abundance. And I wanted to just begin by reading this for us this morning. Starting in verse 8, let's read this together. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has a wise man over a fool, and what does the poor man have who knows who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. I don't uh, remember too many of our wedding gifts. Uh, it's been long enough now since our, Becca and I were married that I don't remember who gave us what uh, with our with our wedding gifts. Um, there's a few that I do. The, few, the more sentimental ones, 
I do recall. But there is one wedding gift uh, that I will never forget, and it was from our friend Seth. Seth is someone that we have uh, lost touch with. We don't know where he is anymore, but uh, he left an indelible mark uh, on our marriage when he gave us his gift. It was in a unmarked uh, envelope except for his name. It said Seth on the outside, and inside was $7. $7, a five and two ones. Uh, and they weren't crisp straight from the ATM, you know, ones. They were, they were a little, little sad looking, a uh, little folded over. And it just, we never will forget it because it was so Seth. It was random. Seth was a little bit of a random guy. I mean, he was a little bit disorganized. But if you knew Seth, uh, you knew that he was somebody who was very loving, and so he would give you his last $7 if you asked for it. And for all I know, that's exactly what he was doing, right? When he gave us this gift, this little envelope, no, nothing in it, no card, nothing, just $7, and we will always remember that. The money revealed the person. I mean, you looked at that gift and you said, that's Seth. <laughs> $7 wedding gift. Seth. The money revealed the person. And the money always reveals the person. If you look at what the Scriptures say about money, and it says a ton, there is no way that we'll be able to reference this morning all of what the Scripture says about wealth and abundance. One of the consistent themes is that it always reveals the heart. It reveals the person. And Solomon, as he's been dealing with some of life's biggest questions, the value of our work, the meaning of life, the relationships, the importance of time, all of these big things that he's been addressing, it seems inevitable that he would turn to one of the biggest parts of our lives, which is our abundance, our wealth. And in the same way that he has addressed those other topics, he does so in the same way this morning. As we've been saying, Solomon addresses us with honesty and with faithfulness. With honesty, he's going to address the topic of wealth, naming the, the hard things about it, naming the realities under the sun. Every, everything under the sun looks a certain way, and then he's also going to hint at, he's going to take us out into the mind of God for just a moment and hint at under heaven, what would it look like to be faithful? What would it look like to, to use your abundance? Under the sun there is despair, but under heaven there is an enjoyment and even a beauty to the abundance that God has given to us. But we have to avoid its traps. The despair that comes from money comes from us falling into its traps, its pitfalls. There are pitfalls of abundance. And I chose that word very specifically this morning because a pitfall is is a dangerous thing, but it has with it the idea of an unexpected danger. That's what a pitfall is. It's something that can be dangerous to you without you even realizing it. And what's interesting when we come to the topic of wealth and abundance is that it always seems unsuspecting to us. It doesn't matter how much the Scriptures talk about it and kind of pounds into us, and Jesus, more than anyone else in the Scripture, telling us about the warnings of abundance, we always kind of feel like that message is for someone else. It always seems unexpected. I'll give you an example. I've led dozens and dozens of small groups throughout the years, over 20 years of different churches and different stages, 
Dozens of them. I have not once had a time when we were sharing what we need prayer for where someone says, I'm really struggling with greed. I really, I'm being materialistic right now. That's never happened. Why? When the Scriptures warn us about it over and over and over again, somehow there's a disconnect. Somehow wealth is always about someone else. Another example would be the fact that very few people, very, very few people identify as rich or as wealthy or as well-off or whatever term you want to use. Very few of us would say, I'm well-off. Even though all of us know people that we consider to be well-off, So you do the math. What's happening here? We're avoiding it. But there there are dangers here. And the dangers are not far away. They're close to us. They're pitfalls. So I want to look at what Solomon calls these pitfalls. And then I want us to see the goal of abundance. Because he doesn't then say that money is bad and should be avoided. He says something very unique. The goal of our abundance. But first we need to look at these pitfalls. There are three that I want to identify here from Solomon. First is the status pitfall. Look at with me at verses 8 and 9. Very hard verses to translate, actually. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields." So there's a kind of violation here that, that, um, that Solomon begins with. There's a violation of justice and righteousness. The word violation there refers to or can include things like this. Robbery, extortion, and usury. These are things that have existed for a long time and they exist still. Robbery, we know what that is. It's, it's the taking of something that isn't yours. Extortion means that you use power or influence in order to make someone else be disadvantaged. It's illegal. Use of force to disenfranchise someone. Extortion. Usury is the lending at exorbitant rates, taking advantage of people who need uh, lending, but then giving them such high rates that it puts them out. This is still hap- All these things are still happening. Robbery, extortion, Usury still happens. Think of the payday loans that are surrounding us in this area. And all of these things disproportionately affect the poor. And so what it's very hard to see what what he's saying here, but exactly what he's saying, don't be amazed at when this happens because there's these people and then there's people over them and there's higher officials over them. What is this talking about? Is this talking about the evils of bureaucracy? Is this talking about the accountability that don't worry about it because there's, there's people that are going to take care of this. I think actually what he is saying here, if you look at it, is he's saying, don't be amazed. This is what abundance does to people. It actually has the power to separate us from God's purposes and from other people. The, the larger our status grows, the more we get disconnected from people and God's justice and righteousness. This is a pitfall. This can happen to us, and it happens in so many different ways. It's easy. It's easy that when we reach a different status, when we have more than to be disconnected from the status that we were before, and all the way down to the bottom, 
to then think of the poor as something that are obnoxious to us or so separated from us. And so he says, the best thing is for a king to recognize, hey, I've got to go back to the cultivated fields. I've got to cut through all of this separation and bring myself back and commit myself to the, to the lowest level of labor. Because status and money can separate us from God and His purposes. We can fall into that. There's a second pitfall, satisfaction pitfall. Look with me in verse 10. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Something else that we can fall into is to believe, no matter how many messages we've heard to the contrary, that money will bring some kind of satisfaction to our lives. But he says there's a couple of problems with that. The reason why satisfaction will not come from money is because of a couple of reasons. First, with more money is increased responsibility. Look at verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? This is what happens when you acquire something, when you have something, then then you'll be increased responsibility. It's inevitable. The obvious way is if you were to buy a business or if you were to buy an asset, that asset or that business has to be managed. And so there are things that you're going to be responsible for. But, but even in the case of receiving a ton of money, say you receive an inheritance or somehow otherwise get quick wealth, still there are more mouths that feed on that. How so? Well, now that you have more, you have, there's more scrutiny over your taxes. You have to hire better people to to make sure that you're not taken advantage of and also that you're paying the government. You have to pay more people to understand that. You're more likely to be sued if you have more money, so you have to have better insurance. And so that insurance costs money. On and on and on. There's things that happen when we have more. There's a complexity, an increased responsibility. And he says you have to be careful because it could be the case that when you get more all, the only advantage, remember that word leverage, the only leverage then you have is to be able to watch what's happening. That other people are taking away what's yours. Increased responsibility. Increased anxiety. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Anxiety increases when we have more because we know instinctively that the higher we rise, the farther we fall. You have more to lose, and if you have more to lose, you have more to worry about and more to protect. Complexity increases our, anxi- complexity increases our lack of satisfaction, and so does anxiety. Because if we're anxious, we're not satisfied. Now listen, it doesn't matter how many times we hear things like this. How many rags to riches to rags stories have we heard? How many times have we heard somebody say who was wealthy, this didn't satisfy me. I realized that money wasn't the answer. I mean, we hear things like that all the time. But it doesn't stop us from believing it. It doesn't stop it from being a real pitfall for anyone to believe that money and wealth will bring a satisfaction that we don't already have. We still want more. Solomon questions us, are you sure you do? Are you sure that more will bring satisfaction? It's likely to bring anxiety. 
and it's likely to bring complexity? And are you sure that you're able to tell the difference between satisfaction and falling into the trap? J.C. Ryle, great British commentator from a different generation, said this, Money is in truth one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt. But it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There is the trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. More money, more problems, right? Somebody in the first service reminded me, that's Notorious B.I.G., right? Who's usually the first commentator I consult on matters of Scripture, right? It's true. It's biblical. The more we have, the more complexity. So is it the case that more is better or more is more satisfying? Be careful of that pitfall. There's a third pitfall, security pitfall. In verses 13 through 17, he displays a situation for us. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is the father of a son. He has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. Verse 16, this is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is the picture of the stockpiler. The one who creates wealth and sits on it. And what Solomon's saying is, one of two things are likely to happen if you have a stockpile of money. You'll either lose it on a bad venture, or you'll die and leave it behind. And either way, you'll lose it. What's really almost impossible to do, he's saying, is to maximize your money for your life. Because for a couple of reasons, you don't know when you're going to die. So you don't know what a maximum is. If you don't know the end date, then you can't maximize today what you should use. Also, because you don't know that, the fear of losing the stockpile makes you keep the stockpile high. And so it creates a conundrum. But here's what's certain. Either way, you'll lose it. You can lose it on a bad venture. Something can take it away. The stock market, stock market can crash. The real estate market can crash. Many of you are familiar with that. A crooked organization can keep it. If Solomon were alive today, I'm sure he would say an identity thief can steal it. It makes you think about how fragile it is when most of us watch our stockpiles on a screen. What happens if that screen goes blank for whatever reason? It's so fragile. You can lose it on a bad venture, but let's say you actually keep it. Let's say you make it to the end. In the end, you still lose it because you leave it behind, naked as you came. And so he notes the irony of a stockpile mentality. The thing that you're dying to get, that is that security with money and that amount of money that will provide for you, the thing that you're dying to get is the very thing that you're guaranteed to die without. You can't take it with you. I've shared before one of my favorite stories of 
Leo Tolstoy, great little short story writer. I love reading his stuff. He, at the end, he always gives us a, a moral, like it's an Aesop's fable. Nobody writes like that anymore, so I enjoy reading his stories. He has a great story called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in the story, it follows this young man named Packham. And Packham desires land, and he says, if I had enough land, I wouldn't even fear the devil. And in the story, the devil overhears him. And then he, he uses him as a test case, and so he begins to give him land. The devil creates opportunities and business ventures, and he gets more and more land, but he's not satisfied. He wants more and more, and finally the devil sets him up with this man who says that he will give him as much land as he can encircle in one day. As far as you can run around in a circle, as long as you make it back here, at the, by the end of the day, I will give you as much land as you can get. And so he begins the day, and he starts off running, and he runs far and far and far, and then he realizes about midday that he's run too far, and that with his energy level, he's not going to be able to make it back. And so then he pours on the speed. He then gives everything he has to finishing this circle. And it's very dramatic in the story. As the sun is setting down, he's coming around the corner, and he finally makes it to the end, just before the sun sets, he has finished it. He has done the biggest possible circle that he can create. And he dies. And then Tolstoy, with his little Aesop's fable ending, says, how much land does a man need? About six feet from head to toe. Even if you succeed, you die in the trying. Solomon's point he says, look, it is possible to fall into these pitfalls and then for your life to be waste. That's the point of the parable that he gives us next at the verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, here's a situation. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. It says, look, I want you to think about this. If you fall into one of these pitfalls, it could be that you live your whole life with all this increased anxiety, increased complexity, getting more and more and more. Even if we were to extend that out over a thousand years and you had hundreds of children, all these blessings from the Lord, let's say you projected out, you could keep increasing that wealth on and on. If there is no enjoyment, no recognition of the good things in life, then it'd be better to be a stillborn child because at least the stillborn child comes in in darkness and leaves in darkness and doesn't have to have this exhausting rat race. He says, this weighs heavy. <laughs> I wonder if it weighs heavy on you. I wonder if you think that you're beyond these pitfalls. To think that you could live your life 
just with other mouths eating and eating and not experiencing the good that God has given? Do you worry about separation from God? Do you worry about your satisfaction? What are the pitfalls that you're most likely to fall into? Has money become a preoccupation for you? Is it separating you from God's people or from His purposes? Is it causing you to turn a blind eye to things that He would want you to notice in people? Are you increasingly unsatisfied? Do you really believe, if you come down to it, that a better situation, a better house, or a more money or a better income will really unlock the satisfaction desire, the, the key. Are you tempted by that? It's a, it's a real pitfall. Or maybe you're someone who stockpiles and you think, whatever I have gives me that safety. Whatever I can look at and see will provide that sense of security. Perhaps you're continuing to move the goalpost, and you think, well, this would be enough. And then you think, well, it's not quite enough now that I've reached it. Now this will be enough. And now this will be enough. We keep moving the goalpost because what we want is security, but we've fallen into a pit to think that money could provide that. These are real pitfalls. And by the way, you can be obsessed with money whether you have a lot of it or you don't. Whether it's in the, gaining, the possible gaining of it or the keeping of it or the gaining of more, it doesn't matter where you fall on the social ladder, which rung you're on. There is pitfalls for you with money. The Bible gives us so many warnings. So many, so many places that calls out this is a problem. And it's a problem that we don't recognize it. As I've mentioned, Jesus Christ is the one who talks about money more than anyone else. Do you remember in the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, we might call it in Matthew 13, the parable is about the sower who goes out and spreads the word, that spreads the gospel, and the, this gospel is the seed that gets planted in different kinds of soil, and there's good soil, but there's also rocky soil and hard soil, and there's different things that happen to the gospel as it takes root in the soil. Do you remember... There's seed that falls on the thorny ground. And this is what he says in the interpretation of the parable. The word gets planted in this soil and it grows up on this thorny ground. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the faith. Now, that's not just a story that Jesus tells. Don't you see that can be happening right now? The Word, it goes out to us. This is Christ's Word to us. And it's possible that we could be thinking, oh yeah, I should probably think about money less. But then immediately we start thinking about it more. That, but if my situation was different, and if I had a better situation, if I had more money, then I really would be satisfied. And it's possible for this to be happening right now. It's the deceitfulness of riches. Why would he say the deceitfulness of riches if it didn't have the power to deceive? There's a feeling that we have control of this, but we don't. It can choke out our faith. Literally, it can take away our faith. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 
verse six, or chapter 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There it is. Yes, the verse before it is misquoted all the time. Money is the root of all evil. No, it says the love of money is a root of, all, of, all, of evil, all kinds of evil. But don't let that distract. Don't let that bring in separation enough to not be challenged by this. It is a root. It takes root in us. All kinds of evil can come from this. And even this evil, wandering away from the faith. Remember that separation that you can get far away from God and His purposes? That can happen with money. The pitfalls are real. They're possible for us. How do we step carefully? How do we avoid the pitfalls? Well, Solomon's answer is surprising and beautiful. He gives us the goal of our abundance. He says this, the goal for our abundance should be godly enjoyment combined with contentment. Godly enjoyment combined with contentment. And I do believe that the Apostle Paul was meditating on this verse when he wrote 1 Timothy, the passage that we just read, because right before that, those verses in 1 Timothy 6, he says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Solomon's point exactly. The goal of our abundance, godly enjoyment with contentment. Let's look at those three terms as we close today. Godly enjoyment with contentment. First, it's godly. Look at verse 18 through 20 where Solomon gives us a solution. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting. By the way, we've seen that word fitting before. That's the same word as beautiful in chapter 3 where he says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything fitting. So here, I have seen what is good and beautiful. Good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him. For this is his lot. We've seen this before multiple times in, in Solomon's writing. He says every time, as I mentioned last time, every time he gives us a little bit more. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy the good things. Last time he said this, he added, for this is his lot. This is your field. This is your portion to enjoy this. Here he adds, this is his lot. And there's verse 19 is extra. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. Wealth and possessions and even power, such a dirty word today, but he says it's a gift. God has given these things to us. That's what he adds here. And therefore, we live with them knowing that, that they're a gift from God. It's godliness that he's inviting us to. It's not just that we eat, drink, and be merry. It's that we eat, drink, and be merry with what God has given us recognizing him it's godly enjoyment not just enjoyment that means that whatever the scriptures say to us about wealth and money we need to listen to as a matter of first importance what does it say 
Oh, I can't go into all the specifics. It says so much to us. But the rest of the Scriptures teach us what we are to do with our money. There needs to be first fruits to the Lord. Tithing to Him, to His church. This is a matter of first importance. Then it talks about beyond the tithers, offerings. And we think about, what has God given to me? And what, what other things has He put in my life that I could support and do good with? Offerings to missionaries and to organizations and to um, alms for the poor. And all these are scriptural concepts. What has He given me first? I need to give away some of it first. Beyond that, I need to support my family. First Timothy tells us this is what godliness looks like with our money, is that we would support our family. The Proverbs talk about saving money, saving wisely. Different from stockpiling like this for our own security, but to put a little bit away, on and on and on, the Scriptures go. Gives us principles that we need to follow. So we need to ask ourselves first, is my use of money godly? Godly enjoyment. Once we have done with what God has said we need to do with our money, then we go for a walk. (laughs) Because He has given us a lot. He has given us a portion. He has given us good things, and Solomon is adamant in this passage and many others in the book of Ecclesiastes that we need to enjoy the fruit of what God has given us. Enjoy it. Go for a walk. You don't have to make a deal with the devil like Packham did to run as much as you can. Don't run. Just walk in the bounty of what he has given you. Enjoy it. What does... What does walking look like versus running? It means that that we're avoiding a high anxiety. We're not obsessed with money. We're not staying up late thinking about it. It means that we're not missing things in our kids' lives for the opportunity to make money. It means that our stress level is within reason because we are walking in God's goodness and enjoying whatever He gives us. Not trying to make it do something that He hasn't given us. Godly enjoyment with contentment. Solomon says, accept your lot. Accept that it's what it is. It has limits to it. You can't have it all. You can't run in that big circle without dying. You have a lot. Accept it. Rejoice in your toil. He's given you good things to do. Do those things and be content with them. And he says, if you do that, it's a beautiful gift. Look, verse 20. He will not remember, not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Amazing. Godly enjoyment with contentment leads to an occupation of joy. We can be occupied with what God has given us. What has He given us? So much. He's given us a lot that we can walk in. But the greatest gift that God has given us, the ultimate abundance, is His Son, Jesus Christ. When the Scriptures talk about the wealth and inheritance that we have, it is in reference to Jesus Christ, who is our portion and our inheritance. To the extent that we focus on that, that we give our lives to Jesus Christ, that we are satisfied in Him, we avoid these pitfalls. Jesus rescues us from the status trap 
because he is this king that Solomon describes. This is gain for a land in every way. The king committed to cultivated fields. The way that you escape that status trap that, that, that there's higher officials and they're higher and you get separated from God's purposes is for a king to say, no, I'm going back to the fields. I'm going back to the, to the source of labor. I'm going to look at that. I'm going to, I'm going to cross that barrier. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. He crosses the divide. He is so far above us. He belongs on the throne in heaven. And He comes and commits Himself to cultivating the fields of this earth so that the poor can inherit it. The spiritually poor who are far away from Him. This King commits Himself to creating this earth for His people and giving it to them as a beautiful inheritance. Jesus is the answer to the satisfaction trap. This heart that will not be satisfied. This love of money. This, this mouth. This appetite that is not satisfied. Solomon talks about better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This appetite is satisfied in Jesus. The only thing that will satisfy the wandering appetite is bread from heaven. Is living water that makes you never thirst again both of which describe Jesus Christ. He is the answer to our satisfaction dilemma. He rescues us from the status trap, from the satisfaction trap, and Jesus is the answer to the security trap as well. Instead of building up stockpiles, instead of using that wealth or whatever it is that we stockpile for security and looking to it, and hoping in it, He actually gives us a share of His inheritance. We are heirs, joint heirs with Christ. By being united to Him, we are brought into the family of God and given an inheritance. And that inheritance is secure. First Peter says that that inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Whatever feeling we have of security, when we look at whatever we have stockpiled, it can be taken away, and it will be. But this is something that is kept in heaven for us. It's not, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's the security that He has won for us by completing redemption. And so if we have Christ, we have the status, we have the satisfaction, we have security. We have everything that we need. We have the ability to be occupied with joy in our hearts. To put away these hungers that won't ever be satisfied by something else. And so as we come to the table this morning, that's what we're asking God to do is to fill us with Himself. That Jesus Christ would be our satisfaction, our abundance that our hearts wouldn't be wandering, that our appetites would be satisfied in Him, and that we would see so clearly the abundant life that He is offering to us, that that joy would occupy our hearts. Let's pray.